Hello, you're listening to Arts Talk Radio, and I'm Michael Hasted. We bring you regular news, reviews and interviews relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, concentrating on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and the surrounding areas. Arts Talk Radio Online. Interviews and features on the arts in English. An edition dedicated to the theatre this week. I talk to a mime artist who takes his unique brand of entertainment around the world, and we travel outside our normal remit to the UK and talk to the man responsible for the second longest-running play in London. American mime artist Bill Bowers travels the world presenting his one-man shows, teaching and holding workshops. He was in Holland recently, teaching at the American School and appearing at the National Theatre in The Hague for Stet, the English theatre. We met up on the terrace of a rather noisy café in Leiden and I was interested to find out more about his one-man show all over the map. This um, play is um, the... the third in a series of plays I've written about being a mime. So it involves the art of mime, part of, part of the storytelling is in mime, but much of what I do is talk about the experiences of being a mime on the road and traveling uh, around the world and the uh, various encounters that I have. Because you travel a lot all around the world, I looked at your, your webpage and it was Hong Kong and Singapore and Romania, was it? Yeah, yeah, I've had a, this has been a really extraordinary year. I've uh, toured Asia and now I'm here in the Netherlands and I go back to the U.S. and do a couple dates there and then I come back to Europe in late April and play Vienna and uh, Dusseldorf and uh, then the fall is very busy in the U.S. so I'm having a nice run of um, luck. Because not only do you perform but you teach as well as you go. I do. uh, what I'm doing in um, the Netherlands is, is, is fairly typical of, of my kind of work. I'm here for a week in residence at a school, the uh, American School of The Hague. And then I did a performance at that school yesterday of another show of mine. And then this weekend I'll be performing at, at Stet for two nights. So I usually combine teaching with public performance. But you sort of jump across the Atlantic just for a week or so, don't you? <laughs> this one I did. Well, I'm very fond of the Netherlands, I have to say. This is, I've, I've played The Hague a number of times, and it's one of my favorite places to be. And uh, I originally thought about trying to just stay the whole month of April, but uh, some other dates came up in the U.S., so I have to jump back across the pond and then come back again at the end of April. But. Do you never tire of airports? And oh, I'm very tired of airports, I have to say. that. Traveling, I don't know if this is true for you, but traveling has, has certainly lost much of the charm that it used to have. I used to absolutely love airports and getting on airplanes and all of that. There used, used to be a glamour to it. And, oh, and, and, yeah, it was fantastic. And I, I have to say it's, it's wearing me down. But um, fortunately and unfortunately, this is how I've learned to make a living. And why, why mime? What brought you to mime? I have been a mime since before I even knew there was the word mime. I am from uh, Montana, which is uh, in the Wild West, and one of those big square rectangle states where there, I don't know if you know this, there are six times as many cows as there are humans in Montana. And uh, so I grew up in a place that's very big and very quiet, and I attribute it 
I attribute being a mime mostly to the experience of growing up in, in a big, quiet place, in a big, quiet family. I'm from a classic American family, that a uh, very large family, and we talk about nothing. So really early on in my life, I started to pay attention to what wasn't being said. So uh, the silence of nature, and then intellectually, I got very interested in the phenomenon of not talking about things. And I'm also a gay man, and I was, oddly enough, a gay boy in a little tiny town in Montana in the 1960s and early 70s when there was absolutely no conversation. So I know all and of this And not much now. of a gay scene, probably. Oh, my gosh. The word gay didn't even exist. when it was, We didn't even have a word. No, 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 absolutely. <laughs> so I know all of this now as, a, as an adult, that when I look back at my life, that's a lot of silences to... to consider. So when I learned that there was an art form, when I was about 14 years old, I learned that there was actually an art about not talking and I thought, not that I would ever be a performer, I just thought, oh I know what that is, I'm going to look at that. And I started teaching myself at about 14 and I've been doing it ever since. And and did you know about people like Marcel Marceau? Did you model did. yourself on anybody? I didn't. Um, you know, I saw him, one of my first memories of television was Marcel Marceau on a a show called The Danny Kay Show. Do you know Danny Kay? Yeah. yeah. He's one of my idols. Uh, I have a few idols, Danny Kay and Charlie Chaplin and Marcel Marceau. Uh, I saw him very early on on this broadcast, and I, I... What's the word? I thought Marcel Marceau was a Martian. I didn't quite understand what he was doing, but I knew that I couldn't take my eyes off of him. And when I was 17 years old, Marcel Marceau came to Montana to a one town in Montana for one night and my mother, bless her heart, bought me a ticket and put me on a bus and sent me off to see him. And that was the, that was the moment where I thought, that's what I'm going to do. So but I, there can't be many opportunities for my artists in Montana. <laughs> no. No, so I was completely self-taught. Um, I had this great experience. Of yeah, I mean, places to perform. But yeah, there wasn't. So I just performed any, I would just look for any opportunity to perform or teach. And that's how I taught myself to be a mime. I would perform anywhere, anytime for anyone. And then I studied acting. I got interested in, because I started looking at this performing art of mime, I started to consider being in more traditional plays. So I did theater in high school and I went to college and studied theater and then went to a graduate school and got an advanced degree in acting because you can study that in the U.S. There was no place to study mime. So what it became was my survival job. That's what I did to pay for school was to teach and to perform. And then I uh, continued to perform. And when I was about 40 years old, uh, Marcel Marceau uh, was turning 80. And I heard on the news that he was embarking on his 80th birthday world tour and it was just absolutely a light bulb moment for me when I thought I'm gonna go study with him and uh, I was actually on Broadway and had a great job and I quit the job <laughs> my agent wanted to kill me but it was just absolutely the surest thing I knew that I had to go with him and I ran off with him for on and off for three years and went on tour with him and studied and he died the next year. So I was so grateful that I took that chance. So it completely 
redirected what I wanted to do as a performer. So the advantage with mime, it's, it's like music. It's a universal language. You can go anywhere and language no problem. They have that in, in, in theatres and things here. If it's a, um, something which is in English or something, they put LNP, language no problem. Oh, and, and mime is, is that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. And also, I got very interested in focusing on mime because of Marcel Marceau in that he said to me, you have to pass this on. I mean, he was in his 80s, and there were only a few of us that were studying with him at that time. And he said, if you don't pass this on, it disappears. You know, just by the nature of what art, of what mime is, it's, it's uh, temporal. It's, it's in this moment between an audience and a performer. You could, you could write about it or you could videotape it, but then you've already changed the medium. But it is quite technical, isn't it? it I mean, is. there are lots of sort of, for want of a better phrase, tricks of the trade. Yeah, yeah. It, it is very technical. I was talking about that with students today because it's a, it's a craft. You have to really spend time with it. It's a physical craft, and it takes a good amount of time to build a foundation. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's disappeared is, you know, not to sound like a, my father at this point, but the younger generations <laughs> seem to spend, they have less of a understanding about really looking at it as a craft, looking at performing art as a craft, as something you build on. Um, and I, I come up against that as a teacher quite a bit, where people see what I do and they think, oh, I want to do that today. It's just, well, it, it takes some time. But, but, but do you think, or do you find that, that my art is dying? I, I have to say I'm very, very hopeful about it, particularly living in New York City. Last year I had 10 mime classes running at the same time. Well, I teach it at New York University, so that's part of it, but it was the busiest I've ever been as a teacher. So I feel like there is a, a renewed interest in the foundation of, of looking at theater as a physical art. Well, and also I have to say the work that I do as a mime has certainly evolved away from traditional pantomime. I mean, are there different schools of mime? Well, the main school is Marcel Marceau because he had such an impact. You know, he had, first of all, such a long career as a performer, and he also had amazing timing because he came into uh, his acclaim right when television happened. So it was just a wonderful synchronicity. He was suddenly showing his art into living rooms around the world. So uh, he's the main, he's the main uh, inspiration. But uh, I've visited in the Czech Republic, um, Poland has a very strong... Uh, I think Eastern Europe is very much into that sort of um, yeah. type of thing and experimental theater in, in general. It, I yes, think. and I have to say probably some of the best and biggest audiences I've had have been in Central and Eastern Europe, Poland, Macedonia, one of the biggest mime festivals how, in the world. How did you get a gig in Macedonia? Uh, oh my gosh, it's actually great. This man uh, who's a mime from Macedonia uh, found me on the internet and he was visiting New York City. It was his first, I think, and only trip to New York. And he uh, wrote me a card and it was very old school. I think it was before cell phones, if you can imagine a time before cell phones. Uh, he uh, said, I'm going to be at in front of this theater, he told me the name of the theater, I said, I'm going to be there at 8 o'clock tomorrow night and I will hold up a sign with your name and if you get this card in time, will you meet me? And I got the card in time and I went and met this little Macedonian man holding my name up. And we had a coffee and 
he invited me to come. He was starting a festival, and he had he wanted to have the United States represented, and he wondered if I would come. There was no money. I bought my own ticket, and it was still one of the best experiences of my life because hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people came. To and see have you played? You have played the Far East, haven't you? I mean, and what about Japan? Because they've got this tradition of um, yeah. Sort of my, oh. I've only played in Japan one time. I loved it. I have uh, in the last two years. I've done a lot of performing in Asia, in uh, in China and uh, Singapore and uh, uh, Bangkok, Thailand. Do you, do you change your show for the, your audiences? I don't change anything, but I do because my work is a bit non-traditional in the fact that I speak sometimes. I use monologues as well as mime and soundtracking. So sometimes, depending on what, what the, uh, the community or the audience is, sometimes they do a super title above me or they do a printout in the program with a basic description of the, the story or the themes. But, uh, but it is still, odd, even if I use the English language, it's still amazingly universal. What, that's what I'm finding is people from all over the world tell me like, oh, that's my story too. That's exactly why I want to keep doing this because... Um, what sort of stories do you tell? I, I write a lot um, autobiographically. Uh, looking at the art of silence to look at the phenomenon of silence in the world and in all the ways that silence is is marvelous and ways that silence can be limiting and more difficult to find that's the other reason I am still being a mime because I <laughs> that is the truth especially living in New York City it's so hard to find a quiet place that yeah I'm trying to be the antidote to uh, to um, devices <laughs> that's that's my hope. Okay, I think that will do for now. Oh. That's Bill Bowers, and uh, we're in a rather noisy cafe in downtown Leiden. And um, thank you very much. Thank you. Arts Talk Radio Online. Arts Talk Magazine provides the perfect companion to Arts Talk Radio with reviews and previews in English of cultural events in Holland. Whatever your interest in the arts, our international team of writers will always provide something new and exciting to see online. That's Arts Talk Magazine, all one word, dot NL. Arts Talk Magazine, dot NL. Continuing our theatrical theme, we also did a bit of travelling, to England in fact. The second longest running show in London's West End, only beaten by the mousetrap, is The Woman in Black, which is now in its 30th year. I went backstage and spoke to the man who commissioned the play, its director Robin Herford, and I wanted to know if, after being involved in the show for 32 years, it had not become a bit of a millstone. Well, it's a nice millstone to have. It really is a nice millstone to have. I'm, uh, but you're still actively involved with it. I'm still actively involved. I change the cast in London every nine months, so I put two new actors in every nine months, and I visit it every six weeks or so just to see that it's um, that that all is well. But the, the great thing is that that you don't you are you don't ask the the actors to repeat what has been done before. And how much does it change? Enormously. I mean, really enormously. You'd be quite surprised um, that, for example, the show that's running here on, on, on tour and the show that's running in, in, um, in the West End uh, have running times of 
over 12 minute difference. This is the quicker one on tour. And how does that occur? People, actors have different rhythms. They play scenes differently. They, they, they see, they play different elements of the character. Maybe they, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's all sorts of ways that it, um, that it can... But the production change. itself, has, has that changed at all? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I mean, basically, you know, if you have two actors on a stage, you, you, you don't have to worry. If there, were, if there were eight people in the cast... And someone said, I, I think I'd get up here and walk around. You'd mm. say, well, actually, no, I'd, I'd rather you sat there because cause she's going to come in in a minute, and, and I don't want you downstage when she comes in because she's coming. So if you could just stay exactly and you where you are. And you wouldn't want to recast it with eight people. Exactly, either. exactly. And if you did, you know, then that yeah. really would be boring. If right. you had to actually re-block it yeah, yeah, yeah. each time. But with this, you, you actually, I suppose in prospect, you think, oh, gosh, can I do this again? And then you meet two people who have never done it before on the foothills of this particular Matterhorn and you think uh, yeah I can I can you know I, 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 I enjoy the, uh, the prospect of, of watching you climb this particular mountain and it is a mountain I'm it's sure a big, yeah. big, it it's a big ask um, it's hugely rewarding to do uh, it, it is it's, it's an exceptionally um, fun show to do because it celebrates what actors can do which has become other people. It really is almost a sort of showcase for, yeah. for, for both of them. Yeah, yeah. Over the sort of 30, 40 years I've been in the business, I, I sort of see uh, actors getting typecast more and more. Whether you get a, sh a, a, a job in a particular television show, uh, and, and, and increasingly a, a theatre show, depends on, on what you look like as you walk into the audition and meet the casting director and the director. It seems. And dependent on which soap you've been in. Because exactly. it seems that virtually exactly. all the shows that come here are Star of Emmerdale, exactly. Star of Coronation Suits. And, and I think that's sad that in a way. It is so sad. It is so sad. Because mm. what we have, and, and, and again, what this play is able to celebrate, is we, we have in this country an extraordinary depth of character actors uh, and leading actors who are totally mm. unknown to I the general I was going to say that you don't have names. In you don't have names. Because now... The show is the name, mm -hmm. and, and, and that, is, that is such a relief. Is there not a, a, a fear? People come to see it just because it's been running for such a long time and not necessarily because it's good. It becomes like a phenomenon because yeah, it's been yes, running. It's, it's sort of self-perpetuating. Exactly. Um, what I try and do you know, to, 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 to militate against that is, is, is A, direct it myself. I mean, if I had handed it over to a staff director, which is what normally happens then it's very easy for it to become stale and barren. But, but because I am able to say, look, for this nine months, it is your show. You own it. So, you, you, you know, in a sense, the decisions you make are the decisions that, that will happen on stage. And how much latitude do the actors have in, they, in, in they, the they effects and the presentation and um, the, the moving? The well, certainly as far the as the... the I mean, how, yeah, how strictly yes. is, it, is it blocked in? How much do they, do they have to follow the original thing? No, they don't have to. Not at all. They don't. The set will dictate certain things. Has I mean, the, the set changed at all? Um, not really. Not really. I mean, I, I've heard people come into the theatre and, and, and look at it and say, well, you know, I, 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 was, I sat behind a couple of Americans in London about five years ago now, a guy and his, his wife, and... And he said, look at this, you know, is this the only thing you could get tickets for? You know, and, and, and it, it looks as if it's been, you know, there's nothing here. You know, what is it? And, and there are only two guys in it, you know, what, what sort of a show is this? I, I was thinking all the way through, it's like that um, thing about people who prefer listening to plays on the radio because the scenery and costumes always better. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and this Absolutely. was very much like that. Absolutely. But while we're talking about that, let's get back to the very beginning of it, because yeah. surely when you, um, you commissioned this, yes. as I understand it, it was a... 
a low-budget fill-in Christmas show as well, yeah. but with no budget, you had two or three actors. And, and basically, I've been told, look, whatever you do, you've got to spend all your grant. Because if you don't spend yeah, all your yeah, grant, yeah, yeah. you don't get it next year, you know. So I had a thousand pounds. I thought, what am I going to do with this? And I thought, well, you know, I've got my program all worked out. All right, we'll do another one. We'll do another show. We'll do a show. Because I always feel that around Christmas time, if you don't have children of your own, you, you're often at, at a loss to when you might want to go to the theatre. But I want to talk more about yeah. the mechanics of it. Yes. Because I mean, you chose the story. Uh, I said to Stephen, Find a story. Write me a ghost story. Oh, okay. You can either uh, adapt an existing one or you can write an okay. original one, but these are the limits. But obviously, the, the, the scope of this, uh, the physical scope, the locations yeah. and, and the number of characters, um, you must have been in on it at the very beginning because it, it yeah. could have been totally impractical to do sure. and it's done almost almost, almost in a sort of under milk wood type of yes. way yes. you have this enormous cast of characters and locations yes. who are presented in a uh, not exactly a stylistic way but in a, in a way which demands the audience um, imagination how much did you work with the with the writing of the of the, of the script? I mean, how uh, to, to, and how? Yeah. What stages yeah. we were going? Yeah, we can't do that. But sure, sure, that, we could sure, do sure, that. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I think that w when I first said to Stephen, look, these are the limitations, and we're not going to do it. We're going to do it in the bar. We're not going to do it in the main theatre because I had a show running in the main theatre morning and afternoon. So I said, we'll do it in the bar, um, which you know had a, a sort of platform end stage, but it was it was. It was tiny. He wasn't very impressed. <laughs> then, then he came back and said, have you read Susan's novel, Woman in Black? I said, no, but give it to me, I'll read it every night. So I read it and said, you know, great story, but far too many people. But it took a couple of years to get off the ground, didn't it? I mean, you did it in Scarborough, then you did it in Scarborough, Thomas then, Smith. Yes, I mean, did it in Scarborough over Christmas and uh, in, a very, in very short order. Uh, you know, three and a half weeks rehearsal, and it played for three and a half weeks. Alan came back from the National, and, and we said to him, look, here's a budget for taking it out on tour, under the, on a sort of smallish scale tour, under the aegis of the, of the Stephen Joseph Theatre. And he said, no, I, I don't think that's a very good idea, you know, I, I'm, I've got new things to do. And so I said, fine. So we went to look elsewhere, and we went, we, we hawked it round, basically. And, uh, and we got a lot of interesting rejection slips. We said, you know, it never worked, never worked. I mean, so you were obviously very confident at the beginning that you had a uh, winner. I just wanted to see whether something that had, w had worked and had quite a profound effect in Scarborough, I mean, it really had mm. jumped people. <laughs> Was that more or less the same? More or less, yeah. There've been little. There've been little. It's 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 a, it's a slow honing process. Because yeah. I think the the thing about this play is that the there is a scope there to do it very small or very large. Sure, absolutely. As you say, you could see it, you know, like the King's Head or something like that, yeah. almost. Yeah. And yeah. you could also see it on the stage of the Littleton. And and it does have an extraordinary capacity to sort of contract. And we also played Hull Truck and you know, <laughs> sort of Spring Street, you know, sort of tiny little theatres. Um, and uh, the credibility of the story would seem to suggest it's a little old backstreet theatre in the 50s when, when you know, they hadn't had a show on for a few years but this young actor knows the stage doorkeeper, he said well you know, why don't you, you know, you can use that as a, as a neutral place to, 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 to muck around in, you know but, yeah. I'm sort of finishing now, so if we yeah, just yeah. talk very briefly about your life apart from <laughs> from Black, well, I mean, it does seem uh, to dominate it it doesn't really, it doesn't really dominate, you know, shows in other countries I have nothing to do with, um, I mean I've toured it to, to India uh, but in English, I've toured the, you know, the, the uh, and, and Hong Kong and Singapore and um, uh, Australia and New Zealand but you know, the, these are 
this is a one-off of but the you, benches. But you, you act as well, you, you played Mr. Yes, Kipps. I've played Arthur Kipps. You yes. consider yourself primarily an actor or director, or both, or is there no difference? Well, I, I, I really do believe that, 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 that the one feeds the other. Uh, I mean, I think there are, there are probably much better actors than me. I think I am the sort of director who hopefully is of some use to an actor. I mean, I, I basically, I'm there to, get, to, to help the actor get the best out of himself. 80% uh, of, of, a, of, an act, of a director's contribution mm -hmm. to a show is the casting, oh, I think. That too. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Yes. But in any year, it's taken out maybe uh, a, a couple of months. Did you never get bored with it? Um, never think, oh, sorry, well, somebody else can do it. Well, no, I don't think... I, I, I'm, I'm too much of a control freak to let someone else do it. <laughs> no, I mean, just to watch it. I mean, I, I uh, you, you own the rights of it. No, I don't own the rights of it. I don't. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I get a small royalty for, for, for shows that I direct. And so, you know, there's a, there's a very good reason to, to want to keep it alive and, and healthy. There's but, a, I mean, as I, my mm, first question was... Yeah. Did you not regard as a millstone? No. And you, you, know, you, you never have Christ not that again. Do <laughs> you never feel that? I mean, sure, there must be something. There, there, there are, are moments. In, there are moments. There are moments. And it's usually in prospect. You know, it's, it's oh, have, have I got the energy to do that again? Have I, have I got something new to give the people? But actually, th that's the wrong way to think. Think what they can bring new to it. And, and they do. They always do. And that, that's quite invigorating. Arts Talk Radio Online. Interviews and features on the arts in English. That was Robin Herford, the director of The Woman in Black. That's all for this week, so it's goodbye. I'm Michael Hasted. <laughs> <laughs>